I, we really thought and foolishly thought, naively thought that we were bringing this culture to middle Tennessee. Nope. It was already here. And, and that was, that's kind of what's so much fun is that we're, we're just threading the needle, you know, um, and, and giving people a little more excuse to talk about something or experience something that they were already curious about. So the groundwork was laid by the culture itself, by Japanese pop culture. Um, we didn't lay the groundwork. So we just happened to have, a, we used the right word in the right place at the right time, and it gave people excitement around it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have sat or been in the shop and um, struck up a conversation with somebody. Hey, how are you doing today? Where are you from? Oh, I'm from two hours from here. Wow. wow. How, why did you come? Well, I've been reading the graphic novels for 20 years and I just wanted to have finally have my first bowl of ramen. <laughs> so I think that, I think that Japanese otaku culture is so much more pervasive than anyone really understands mm -hmm. in middle America because it is about outsider culture yeah. and people love that. They love the underdog. They love feeling like they're in a pack of underdogs. So that, I think that the culture represents a big piece of the success. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Way Ramen Podcast. On today's show, we have the lovely Sarah Gavigan, the chef owner behind Otaku Ramen and the Otaku Group in Nashville, Tennessee. Sarah has a fascinating story. After working two decades in the music and film industry in California, Sarah moved back to Tennessee to be closer to her family and stumbled upon making ramen while she began to try to recreate some of her favorite foods that she missed eating in LA. Sarah has become a true powerhouse in the American ramen scene, bringing ramen to the ramen list, as she says. And she's one of the pioneers of this American style style ramen that we're starting to see now. In this episode, Sarah talks about how she got started with ramen, how she transitioned into a pop-up, which then led to a restaurant and which led to multiple restaurants, what it takes to run a successful restaurant, especially a successful ramen restaurant, and also her thoughts on what restaurants are going to need to do to navigate this post-COVID world that we're going to be living in very soon. I had a really great time talking to Sarah, and I think this episode is super helpful and informative for anybody who has dreams or aspirations to do a ramen pop-up in the future or own a ramen restaurant. So without further ado, here is Sarah Gavigan of Otaku Ramen. Enjoy. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show again, you know. You're talking about this. Yeah, um, happy to be here. <laughs> so I'm sure a lot of people who are going to listen to this interview and this podcast already know who you are. You have books and you have a very successful restaurant. But in a few words, of your own words, could you tell people who is Sarah Gavkin? So um, I am, I think I consider myself more an entrepreneur than I do a chef, honestly. Um, and I didn't start cooking professionally until my 40s. So I'm turning 50 this year, and it's been um, a complete life-changing, um, I mean, my whole, my whole world and sphere changed when I fell in love and fell down the Robin rabbit hole and decided to make this what I do for a living. And my husband joined me, and we run the business together. So it's, I think it's been such a gift. I never really imagined how much joy it would bring me. Um, and I never really imagined that it would be ramen that would become my career, so to speak. So, um, but I do believe that it's, 
it's really one of those things that when you love it, you truly, truly love it. And it, it brings so much joy for so many different reasons. And yeah, I love what I do. I have a, I, I love your story because I've talked to other people as well. And I have a similar story where, you know, music industry kind of things and then mm-hmm. finding ramen and kind of ramen becoming like a really obsessive thing for a little bit. And that's kind of where I'm. So, you know, your story, as far as like your, let me see, let me see. I'm sorry. I'm kind of sure. nervous, but I have these notes, but no, we talked okay. a little bit about your previous life and what was the impetus mm-hmm. of giving all that up? Because, you know, you were in the music industry and in, in California mm-hmm. and things and, what made you transition from that into getting into ramen? So in the early 2000s is when I picked up Jonathan Gold's book, um, Counterintelligence. And I had always been really curious about food and wanted to know as much as I could and learn as much as I could. Um, I grew up in a really small town in Tennessee, so I didn't have a lot of exposure to food outside of Southern food until, and Italian food. I grew up in a Sicilian household. So when I got to Los Angeles, it was like, that was my, where I spent all my free time and all my money was eating and cooking. And I, I kind of followed chefs like many people follow football players. I was (laughs) totally a groupie and was super into, um, I was lucky I lived down the street from the farmer's market. And so in Santa Monica, the famed Santa Monica farmer's market, and every Wednesday I would go and buy coffee and walk around and follow the chefs around, be like, hey, chef, can I give you a coffee? And then <laughs> pelt them with questions over, hey, why are you buying that? What are you going to do with this? And And I think I amused them because I had no fear. I had nothing to lose. I wasn't trying to prove anything. And so that kind of started building my relationships in the business. And um, I, I think after being in an industry that was so incredibly subjective, you know, music is, you know, you're basically selling emotions. Right. And so um I was a talent agent for a long time and I represented cinematographers. And then when I moved into music, I represented record labels and artists. And so it was really my job to take care of people. And that was for better or for worse, what I had come to love the most. Um, But the industry was proliferating, you know, digital media was really changing the landscape. And when the economy, when the economy hit the tanker in 2010, Um, my husband and I just said, it's time for change. And we didn't have any idea what that change was going to be. And I didn't have any idea how difficult that transition was going to be for me. But we decided to move uh, back to Tennessee to be closer to family and um, to live a, a little bit better life for our young daughter. And when I got here, I was just completely lost. I was from here, but I didn't You know, the old saying, you can never go home. It's completely true because it's never the same as it was. And you're not the same. Mm -hmm. And all the things that I loved so dearly about Los Angeles, going downtown or eating in Monterey Park and getting Szechuan food or going and getting a bowl of ramen that had become my respite, completely unavailable to me. You know, food was my emotional crutch. So in lieu of having that emotional crutch, I had to just create it for myself. And the amount of joy that it brought me and the people that um, decided to join me on this journey has really just been the greatest gift. 
was there a reason why you didn't want to do music in Nashville? Because Nashville is like music city as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It was like, I moved to Nashville to get out of the music industry. Right? <laughs> um, it's, it's just a completely different ball of wax here. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I think, again, I was like, I was most interested in getting out of something subjective. I, I wanted to work with my hands. I wanted to be able to touch and feel something that I did. I mean, it, a, a typical day for me when I was um, at the latter part of my music career as a supervisor, I would maybe be woken up by a producer at six o'clock in the morning, given the specs of a job, told that I had to have um, all my work done by 4 p.m. Um, I completely cancel my entire day. I disappoint my child. I can't take her to school. I work all day long and then my work is dismissed in less than 10 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So that after 20 years of that, I was ready for a different challenge. Uh, so my my background is not that in that aspect of the music industry, mm-hmm. but you know, I I've run out music teaching company with my friends for like the past 12 years. And once you peek under the curtain of the music industry a little bit and you see like, Oh, it's not really a nice place to be in terms of like how people treat each other a lot of times and how cutthroat a lot of the business tactics that are used to sell this kind of like thing that everybody uses such a positive thing in their life. You know, music is such a positive thing. It really is off putting. So I can, I could completely understand when I started to read your story, of why you'd want to get out of it to do ramen or something or anything else, you know, after doing yeah. it for 20 years or so long you're doing. Yeah. I mean, doing it in the beginning was just, it was such a blast. Like, it's exhilarating, you know, you know, when you're doing all oh, of these things. Yeah. To write a $150,000 check to a no-name artist, mm-hmm. that's a thrill. Mm-hmm. And to have that artist come back and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I got to buy a ring for my wife and I got to buy a house. Like, that was what kept me in it for so long. Mm-hmm. And when, um, when the industry just blew up, you know, the licensing industry blew up and I, I found myself having to compete in a way that I just, I wasn't interested in doing that. I was too old to compete like that. <laughs> no, no. Like that's, that's always been the challenge of like, you know, you have your morals and where do you, sometimes you're forced to like cross those and it's a, it's a personal decision whether you're going to do that or not, you know, and for a lot of people, myself included, it was kind of, you know, you, you have either have to leave a bunch of money on the table to stick with your morals or completely abandon them to make a living. And yeah. at that point it's, The economy made the decision for us, though, and that's (laughs) something that I kind of want to say in the time of Corona and what we're heading into now, and Mm -hmm. an obvious economic turn. That um, you know, I heard uh, Will Guadara say this the other day. um, That uh, uh, oh gosh, now I can't even remember the word. Um, I'll I'll come up with it in a second. But you know, these times are difficult, but they create opportunity. Oh, yeah, and sure. and I wouldn't be here in this position, sitting in this office with 60 employees running three restaurants if it wasn't for the recession of 2010. Yeah, that's a great way to, to think about it. There's always yeah. opportunity and adversity. That was the word. Adversity is a terrible thing to waste. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree with that as well. So, so when you moved back to Nashville, how did you start learning to make ramen? Because it's not like you could just mm-hmm. find... No a teacher locally or anything. So what was your nothing. process of learning to make ramen? So I think because I had had no professional training, it actually was better, mm-hmm. right? 
because when you start to understand the mechanics of ramen, it's the complete polar opposite of French cooking yeah, yeah. and what most people learn when they go to culinary school or when they start into a kitchen. So looking back now, I can see that I had ignorance was my advantage. And so um, I basically like watched Japanese YouTube videos and would like, what what is in that pot? What and it was guessing game, uh-huh. literally. That's all I had. There were no books. There were no one to help me. No people. Nothing. Um, and then I realized after going to a couple of my favorite ramen shops in Los Angeles and kind of like going back and looking through pictures and things, I saw Sun Noodle, and I was like, uh-huh. oh well, I think I'll just reach out to them. <laughs> and and that was really the spark was meeting Kinshiro and. Uh-huh. Um, getting connected to them, he brought me in to the ramen family. And he really, um, I owe him so much because he didn't see me as a woman and he didn't see me as um, a white person. And he saw me as someone who loved ramen, period. And he wanted to help me learn and help me get what I needed to learn. So there was, uh, there's a butcher store right across the street from my office, which is kind of where it all started. And I walked into them and I was like, Hey, I need pork bones. I don't really know what it is that I'm looking for yet, Mm -hmm. but let's do this. And so, you know, I would say that it took me like, I don't know, 50 different tries to even figure out what kind of bones I needed. And then from there to just start to understand the mechanics of tenkatsu and and what it is and how it works. And I think that the stock is really like where the magic lives for me is in making stock. Um, I still, if I'm making stock at home, I will stand over the pot like a child waiting for the bloom, you know, like um, I still get excited by that. Um, And, and so that kind of, I think also coming into it from film production and from music the one great advantage that that industry taught me was how to ask questions Mm -hmm. fearlessly and how to research and how to attack something that you don't know. So I think with those skills, plus my organizational skills from being in film production, you know, running a pop-up restaurant is not all that dissimilar to running a film set. I can imagine. And yeah, so it felt very familiar to me in that way, but a couple of, um, really important things happened along the way that allowed for all of this. And one was finding um, this old kitchen that had basically is still my kitchen. We're in the same building right now. It's my commissary kitchen now, but it started out, it it was like this giant kitchen for a 6,000 square foot restaurant on the fourth floor of an old administrative hospital building. Weirdest thing ever. And I bought it out for a song like, oh, okay. I, I, I used it for a year and then I was able to take over the kitchen and having that space, like it's almost impossible to make ramen in anything but a professional kitchen because of the heat and the cooling and the voluminousness of it. It's, you know, there's just so many things that you don't consider, but connecting with Sun Noodle. And then um, from there, I got connected to Shigatoshi Nakamura-san, who at the time was um, the staff chef for Sun Noodle. And so I decided rather than going straight to Ramen Lab, that I was just going to work on my own for a year and then go to Ramen Lab. 
And that was, again, ignorance being bliss. And also too, like, let's rewind this for a second Mm -hmm. and think if I had been um, brave enough to do this in a city like Los Angeles, this would have unfolded completely differently, Uh right? I had what ways um, ways do you think it would have changed? Well, I had the advantage of being in a city that no one knew what ramen was. No Uh one had a palate. So I was able to make years of mistakes without people really understanding the depth of my mistakes. And so that gave me a huge advantage, you know, and I don't think I would have gotten off the ground if I had been in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I maybe would have had more access and more help and more ingredients available to me. And maybe that would have kind of caught me up. But if I'm just to look at um, competition and exposure, um, I don't believe that otaku ramen would be as popular as it is today if I hadn't opened in a place that had no experience with it at all. You know, we, we say that our mission is to bring ramen to the ramen list. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think that that really formed who we are. I'm not, I have absolutely no desire to uh, compete with my favorite ramen shops in, mm. you know, in larger cities. Um, I'm really more interested in bringing ramen to places that don't have it, That's to introduce so cool. them to it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Sun Noodles is a Hawaii company and I'm in Hawaii. I'm from Hawaii mm-hmm. too. And it's, it's almost ironic in the sense that ramen in Hawaii hasn't even really been a thing yet. It's yeah. kind of weird. That's, we, we've had Simon forever, which is kind of like the right. local version of ramen. But what, to see what Sun Noodles has become from like this Simon noodle maker in Hawaii to this worldwide mm-hmm. leader and making ramen noodles yeah. and ramen, promoting ramen around the world has been kind of phenomenal. Um, it is. What was your first bowls of ramen like? You know, you seem to have gone pretty mm-hmm. fast from, hey, I'm going to just start trying to learn how to do this, contact some noodles mm-hmm. to opening your first pop-up. Like, what was your first bowl of the, when you tried to make it on your own? What was that mm-hmm. like? What did it taste like? Yep. Was it Dirty tenkatsu. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it tasted probably like somebody's gem socks. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, it, you know, which now knowing what we know, you know, anytime you walk into one of those like super dank tonkatsu shops that smells like the inside of a hockey bag, uh-huh. you know, you're like, ugh, you know. So my very first bowl of ramen ever that I ever ate was at Santuka. Okay, okay. And and so that tonkatsu shio is kind of my ground zero. Mm-hmm. So that was always what I was trying to match. And my tonkatsu is very much based on that. It is a, a light shio based very um it's got that kind of light palette about it which really to me is kind of like a los angeles thing like Mm -hmm. los angeles has kind of mastered this light tenkatsu that i really have never found anywhere else but my first bowls were i didn't even know what i was chasing that's the thing and again going back to you know stock is one piece of it but i found and still do find tare to be far harder Yes. Yeah, to yeah. um and you know then scientifically starting to try and understand how do you get flavor into something that is as fatty as these broths. So I would say that my early ramens were probably pretty flat. 
like they didn't have true umami because I didn't understand umami yet. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was literally, I thought it was a magic trick. Like, oh, only great chefs can conjure umami. Uh-huh. But it wasn't until my my dear friend and phenomenal chef, um, Yuji Haraguchi from Economy in Brooklyn, in Yuji Ramen, he showed me um, this Japanese umami map. And, and I was like, what? You got to be kidding me. There's a map. <laughs> and that was literally when my click, okay, now I'm a Virgo. So I'm like really analytical. And once somebody showed me that map, then it all clicked. So, you know, Yuji and Nakamura-san have been um, such incredible friends. Like I would say that I call Nakamura-san my sensei. I also call Yuji my sensei, but they're also really wonderful friends. And that is, I think, a decidedly American ramen thing. Like it doesn't feel like that exists in other ramen cities, that the sharing of knowledge, you know, in in Japan, it's not that way at all. Uh Um, They certainly have no interest in sharing knowledge with me. Yeah, they'll get together. They'll get together, it seems like, but they don't share any of their secrets. You know, they'll hang out, Mm -hmm. they'll drink, go drinking Mm -hmm. together, but they don't like, hey, here's what I'm working on. You know, yeah, that's not a thing. Yeah. No, but but also we have to remember that we're kind of at the beginning of the of the industry here too. Mm-hmm. So you know to get to be a pioneer in that, um, but also to get to share that information too. You know, I have um, some employees that have worked for me that have broken off and started a ramen pop up, and that's super exciting to see them. It's called Black Dynasty Ramen, okay. and and they bought a noodle machine and they're going total Kodawari and it's really exciting to see. So, you know, it's, I, I, I think it's really important to try and pass on the knowledge and mm-hmm. pass on what you can. Everyone is going to hold back some of their secrets. Come on. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. But it, it's been so nice to know that when I get stuck that I can go to them and ask them questions. And, but, you know, before I started doing this, I don't think there was a single ramen book published, not one. Not that I could find, even in Japanese. Yeah. Wow. How how long did it take you from your first bowl of porky tonkotsu ramen that you made at home to your first pop-up that you ran? Like, what was the time span between that? It wasn't long. <laughs> um, it wasn't long at all. And had it been my choice, um, it probably would have been a lot longer. But so the way it happened is that um, it was in the summer of 2012 that I started this and about three months into kind of hosting these ramen parties at my house where my friends were just like, Oh my God. And then one of my friends passed that information along to a guy she was dating. Who's a chef really, really well regarded. Um, now Michelin star chef, his name's Uh Eric Anderson. And he was at a restaurant called the catbird seat. And she's like, I know Eric wants to try it. I'll bring him over to the house. And so that was in July. And then by the end of that day, he sent out a tweet that basically, as I said in the book, took me from underground to above ground in 10 (laughs) seconds. And so it was kind of, you know, if I've learned anything from the entertainment industry, it was like when the ball starts rolling, Mm -hmm. it's time to go. So that really like put me in, okay, all right, enough talking. Now it's time to start doing. 
So my very first pop-up was in September of that year. And um, it was, I'd, you know, at that point, you're kind of so blissfully ignorant. You don't even know what you don't know. And you're just so full of energy. And it's the most magical time, you know. And um, I still have a picture of a tweet that a chef who's a dear friend of mine sent me um, saying, congratulations, remember this time because you will need to call on it through your career. And, and I do, I do call on it a lot because that day and that moment was such an achievement on so many levels. And I really do think that being in this industry and doing what we do every day, <laughs> you have to decide that you're going to get up and do it. You know, mm -hmm. it's something that is hard, but you love. And, but I think that my bowls of ramen have, um, I had to stop changing them. I got to the point where I was like, I got to stop here, <laughs> you know, and that's hard to yeah, do. Yeah. It's hard to stop. Well, your customers it. are probably expecting a, a, a flavor, right? And so you, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So really now what it's more about for me is um, preserving that flavor. It's more about supply chain and how am I going to ensure that I get that the exact same time every single time and trying to work with new technology to help us get there because what we didn't expect was that we would go from being a little, you know, Kodawari shop to doing 750 bowls of ramen a day. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What, what was the perception of ramen in Nashville when you started doing these things? Like you said, like a chef, a few months into it, a chef tastes your ramen. is like, this is it, you know, like puts you on big time. So yeah. Was there like absolutely he, no ramen in Nashville at the time or was it? Zero. Wow. 99 cent packet. Nobody knew. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was, it was pretty easy target, right? Like people, if you love noodles and you love soup, you're going to love ramen. If you, if you like salt, you're going to love ramen, but also like this is pork country, like all hail the pig in the South. Right. So it wasn't a far jump. And um, one of my absolute favorite and one of Nashville's most beloved uh, barbecue restaurants called Peg Leg Porker, a guy named Carrie Bringle has the most incredible barbecue, is right down the street from us. And when we were kind of scoping out where we wanted to have the shop, we would go there a lot. And we still do. And, you know, I used to joke around and be like, if we can get these barbecue boys to come eat with us just once a week, uh -huh. we can make it. We get them twice a week, three times a week. <laughs> so I think that, you know, there's just, there's like so many reasons why I think it succeeds. Number one, it makes you happy. Mm. It makes you feel good, like inside and out. I, you know, and I didn't know why I, I, I knew, I knew the feeling was there, but I couldn't tell you why until I understood the actual scientific mechanics of umami. Mm -hmm. Umami signals the brain, mm -hmm. makes you happy. Um, but also too, because Southerners love habitual food. They love habits and ramen is habitual. <laughs> you love what you eat the most, right? Like if someone says, Santuca is my absolute favorite bowl of ramen. Mm -hmm. Somebody would be like, oh no, mm -mm. Apudo is my favorite bowl of ramen. Well, you could easily say to them, I bet you've eaten Santuca three times more than you have Apudo, right? So it's like it forms a habit and it, and that is something that Southerners that is normal for them, but you can't predict any of these things. They just kind of happen as you go and you learn about people and what, what they like. But 
you know, Americans' relationship to ramen is so different than Asia's relationship to ramen, even Japan. I think Japan kind of has its own relationship to ramen. Um, and it's, it is their true comfort food. They don't, and, and it is truly habitual, right? So I don't know where I was going with all of that, but. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I, I completely agree. Like I have some friends in Japan and they're like, I don't, I don't eat ramen that much, maybe like once a week. You know, that's not that much for someone in Japan. <laughs> so it really is kind exactly. of like Yeah. Um, so how did you transition from the pop-up to the restaurant? When did you know it was time, you know, to, okay, mm-hmm. this is kind of, I feel confident enough to invest a lot of capital and money into this right? mm-hmm. and, 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 and just energy into opening a restaurant. Mm-hmm. When did you know it was the right time to make that jump? So we took over the kitchen in um, 2013. And then in 2015, we opened up the other side of it as a restaurant and ran it as a pop-up restaurant. So we called it pop because I wasn't quite ready to serve ramen five, seven days a week, but we started doing it out of that space. And so, you know, it was literally like we just opened up a dining room in front of an existing kitchen. It was a pretty easy transition. And so that started moving and working. And then we went, okay, now I think in um, 2015 was when we started making moves. So I guess it was 2014 when we opened the commissary kitchen and we ran there. But we, by the time we opened the shop in December of 2015, if you count the time that we were at Pop, we had been a pop-up for three years. So it was significant. Yeah. And it was just like financially, it made sense at that point. Like you could see repeat customers and the growth of the market and, I I mean, can you ever make a true argument for spending that kind of money? I mean, (laughs) you know, $700,000, you know, is an ungodly sum of money. Um, It was a risk. That's all I can say. It was, and again, like we didn't know what we didn't know. (laughs) We charged into this and we got super lucky you know, in that we were in the right place in the right time with the right thing. And we've worked very hard, but so much of what we do is held up by the people that love it. And they control the emotion of the brand way more than we do. And so it's funny to see how emotional people get about this brand and about this food. It gets, it gets me excited because there are very few things left in the world that are nonpartisan and that are yeah. non-judgmental, mm-hmm. and ramen is. <laughs> yeah, I, I find like going back to like the music thing. Music can, is also similar, where you know you could have the whole political. Oh no, no, <laughs> the political spectrum. If music is music can transcend like a lot of these like petty things that mm-hmm. people take, you know. And food, mm-hmm. I feel, is very similar, where it can transcend a lot mm-hmm. of the petty like BS that people argue about all the time if it's good it's good you know it can be universally accepted so i really think that's cool it's 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 tough too because the you know right now we we have no idea what the shop is we're doing to go full time Mm -hmm. now and that's going pretty well but you know really it's been such a whirlwind trying to get up and going and moving in a time of covid but i think what we're really all kind of starting to mourn a little bit is the life and the feeling of the shop when it, when there are people in there and people are celebrating and it's 
spending, you know, father daughter dates and teenage first dates and all the wonderful things that get to happen in the shop. Um, yeah. We're really, really missing that and um, excited to have that back. But the, the ramen shop, it like you don't see that in a ramen shop in Japan, right? Like it's an eat and go situation where it, it plays an emotional role here that I didn't expect at all. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to talk too much about it because I know it's probably a downer, but as far as COVID-19 and how it's affected sure. the business. That's yeah, reality. And, yeah, I mean, like, what, how are you navigating this situation? Because I, I can only imagine it's, like, incredibly tough for any restaurant yeah. owner to lose that significant portion of dining revenue right off the top. You know, you're switching yeah. only to takeout, and there's people that are just not going to do that that would have come into the restaurant. So how, how are you going about navigating this time? So actually I spoke to Ivan a couple of days ago Mm -hmm. and um, we were checking up on each other and, and he asked me the same question and I said, you know, I actually have you to thank Ivan because years ago um, I asked him, Hey, what do you think about ramen to go? Because I knew that it was like verboten, you know, and it was a big no, no um, for reasons that we understand. Right. Those of us that love eating a true bowl of ramen that's been, you know, put together in that a la minute in that moment. Um, and in a very Ivan response, he said, it's my fucking job to sell ramen. <laughs> and I went, thank you. So he kind of gave me permission mm-hmm. to, or at least in my mind, that's how it felt. And so we took the kitchen here and we put a to-go window on it and we started doing ramen to-go way before other people were doing it. And so we already had a very flush to go system in place when this happened. So it wasn't wasn't like you were scrambling to try to get a to go system up. You already had it to go in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have, um, all of our packaging is, you know, already done and, um, our experience is really dialed in. Our guests are already acclimated to Mm -hmm. the idea of ramen to go. Um, so we were very fortunate in that way. Um, it's not, uh, a hundred percent a solution to a long-term problem, but we just are taking it one day at a time, to be honest. But so far, so good. I mean, we feel very fortunate that we are in a pretty good position right now. How do you do ramen to go? Like what's your, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's doing it different. I see a lot of people trying to do kits where they're making people go home and mm-hmm. cook things. Yeah. What are you offering for your ramen to go? I'm not, I haven't, I've never been to Nashville, so I'm in Hawaii. But yeah. No, like what, what are so you doing? We do it in two containers. So we put the soup in one container mm-hmm. and we put the noodles and the toppings in a second container. And we give instructions for people to heat up the, you know, the stock only and to pour that over the noodles. And we did extensive testing with Sun Noodle and made a couple of changes on noodles to be able to serve them in this way. Oh, so okay. You may not get a truly al dente noodle when you're doing to-go. And we do have to put a small amount of oil around the noodle. So it does, and for like the hardcore, you can immediately taste a difference. I'm not even going to lie about that. But at the same time, if it's, um, if it's that or no ramen, <laughs> people want their ramen. I think it's giving people a lot of comfort at home. I, I'm, I'm not opposed to ramen kits. I think they're really fun. And we've wanted to do them for a long time. I think right now I'm kind of 
we're just going to keep doing it the way we're doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So has that kind of like bumped up? Like, have you seen a portion of your dine-in customers switch to, to go because that's their only option now? Like, has that, have you seen that, that grow? Like, it has translated. Yeah, okay. it has translated. Um, the to-go window is, you know, sales really are exactly the same, if not a little bit better. And at the shop where we're doing all to go, um, I think that our the, the neighborhood that that shop is in, they're thrilled because we never did to go out of that unit before because it was so busy that we just, we couldn't, we couldn't do it. So yeah. now I think they're, there's no going back for us. Like we're not <laughs> going to be able to not do it now. So we have kind of, uh, we have different problems that we have to solve. We have a very small ramen shop with a very low wall between the cooks and, and the guests. There's less than two feet away between the cooks and the guests that we're going to have to change all of that. So I think we're going to stay closed. Our dining room will stay closed probably through the end of the year. Yeah. I was, yeah. was kind of interested in that. Like where do you see the restaurant industry heading after we kind of come out of COVID-19? Oof. Like what kind of changes are going to be in there? Like permanent changes, you know, like, as, or at least long-term changes on, for it. Yeah. I think Americans have a, a beautiful and, and historical dose of amnesia and um, don't really want to face ugly things and changes. So I would say that based on um, Tennesseans' reactions to COVID itself and to reopening Tennessee, that we are going to see that if we let things go back to normal, they probably would. So I think that it's probably going to fall on us, the owners, to do what we feel is in the best interest of public health outside of politics and outside of economic gain to ensure that we can keep people safe. But at the same time, we don't know the answer yet because we have, I mean, the ramen shop, people sit elbow to elbow, you know? next to strangers and talk to each other all the time. It's like one of my favorite things when, when I, I don't work the line much anymore, but every now and then I'll pinch hit. And I just, I never get tired of seeing people at the ramen bar talking to each other. And, um, and I just, that's what makes me really, really sad is when I think that that might go away, but I don't think it will. I really don't. I do. I guess I want to say that I believe in science and I believe that science can get us out of this and that science can move us forward like it has in so many other things. So I'm going to manifest and believe that with a couple of small changes to my ramen shop and some miracles from science that we can get back to normal. Do you, do you have, I guess you would not, not know, but do you have like any idea how long that's going to take? Is it going to take like a vaccine or what, what do you think it's going to, or is it just going to be like, you know, okay, everybody, you can go back to restaurants now and then just right back to normal or? I mean, again, I don't think that the American public has any interest in being told what to do. They think that pretty clear. (laughs) Um, So I think it's going to fall on the owners to do what they feel is right. And we're still trying to figure out what that is, which is why for us, it's just better to keep the dining room closed for now. Mm -hmm. And, um, And then, you know, we're doing a couple of other things. Like it was important to me if we reopened that not only were we serving 
our customers, but we were doing something for our community. And so we're doing um, a program called the Lee Initiative, which is a really good friend of mine, um, an amazing chef and uh, philanthropist, Edward Lee, who is a Korean guy from New York who has a restaurant in Louisville and in D.C., and he started uh, the Lee Initiative, which is a nonprofit organization that raises money um, mostly for women and, and gives scholarships to young women in the hospitality industry. But he switched gears and he raised a bunch of money to activate 18 kitchens across the country to feed restaurant workers. So right now we're also doing that and doing that little bit of good to help our community has really helped all of us resolute a lot of this kind of strange territory that we're in. Um, but when that project is over in a couple of weeks, we're excited to get to doing like specials and we run actually one of the things that I'm really looking forward to is, um, every summer we do what's called the summer series and it changes in theme. The very first year we did it, it's for eight weeks and it's a limited edition bowl that we put out, um, based on a theme and you get a punch card and it's like a player game and they're, are you know you can win and like if you're otaku and you're into gaming it's like yeah, yeah. it's really fun so the first year we did it it was eight bit we did like nintendo characters oh, that's cool. and then last year we did studio ghibli and um this year haven't announced my theme yet but we're going to be announcing it in, like, in about a couple weeks i think but um that's fun because that's when i really get to like take people into all new areas of ramen you know, and really stretch their perception of ramen and get them out of their habits, right? Because yeah. as you know, it's like once you go to a ramen shop and you get set on your bowl, it is so <laughs> hard to get away from that bowl, right? Because yeah. nothing quite hits the spot like mm -hmm. that bowl. So um, I find quite honestly that running specials throughout the year can kind of be a bust because of that mindset. But during these eight weeks, people really take the ride and have fun with it. So um, I'm probably gonna collaborate with some ramen chefs this year and bring some other talents into the mix to kind of expand people's um, minds and perceptions. But it's also a really fun way to, um, to change people's palates. You know, the, the American palate does not like dried fish the way that the Japanese palate does. Oh, I was going to ask so, you about that. Like, what have you changed? You know, like you, you've learned mm -hmm. like, you know, probably from j these Japanese ramen chefs, like you put katsuboshi, you put niboshi mm -hmm. into these things. Like, have mm -hmm. you made, I was going to ask you like, what kind of things have you altered to maybe cater to the American palate or at least the palate in mm -hmm. Nashville? Yeah. Well, I, I like to say that we're a traditional American ramen shop. And what that means to me is that I follow traditional methods for what I do. That's taught to me by my sensei. And, um, but the, the first thing that I really learned was that Americans don't appreciate dashi. <laughs> and they don't appreciate the nuances of some of those flavors. And to do it right is extremely expensive. And it can drive the price of ramen up dramatically, especially because to get high-end, you know, satsobushi and katsobushi um, or zeki, if you want to get heels, to get any of that stuff shipped in, I'm, I'm not at a drop-off point. I'm in the middle of rural Tennessee, right? So people have to really want and appreciate it. That was the first thing that we omitted from our ramen was uh, dried fish. 
So the way that I get to umami is a little bit different, but that's really the biggest change is that we don't use any dried fish in our ramen because um, it also creates a lot of um, like dashi is very expendable. Like it doesn't last long. Right. And keeping it hot for a long period of time on the line in aluminum you know, and stainless, it changes the flavor. Mm-hmm. Asking a, you know, 17 year old kid who's no clue what that is <laughs> uh-huh. to make it and to make it in a way that makes absolutely like watch for the bubbles, turn mm-hmm. it off, take it mm-hmm. off the heat, you know, these things that seem so easy. There's a light handedness to it that uh, American, they don't appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So, one of the biggest challenges that I have had in building this business is supply chain. And, you know, every time I go to Japan, I say, um, the more I learn, the less I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and they have such an unfair advantage. You know, people ask me all the time, so what's the difference between your ramen and Japanese ramen? I'm like, yeah. oh my God, how big is the ocean? You know? <sighs> so I think that, if I had access to thousands of kinds of miso and if I had access to thousands of kinds of shoyu, mm-hmm. I would make a very different ramen, but I don't. So I have to work with what I can get. I have to work with what makes sense for the cost of what I'm doing and for the people that are buying it, but that can also create a very consistent flavor. Like mm-hmm. it, again, I struck out to do this as like a little craft ramen shop. Yeah, yeah. I really had no idea that we were going to be high volume. So a year into this, we really had to change the way we thought. Like, okay, this is our reality. And we're not going to be able to make this a viable business, both for us or for our guests, if we don't change the way we think. So that, I would say, you know, we're, we're five years old in December. I would say that 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 frame of mind didn't start really coming to me into year two. And it took me the better part of year two and year three to really make those decisions. Yeah. See, Yeah. I feel like you and Ivan are kind of like similar in a sense where you guys understand the business aspects of running an operation Mm -hmm. just as much as, you know, the food and the product. Like Ivan Mm -hmm. was kind of talking about it in his interview, which I did just before this was, um, part of the part of your job, if you have like a shop or something is you make, of course you're going to make the best food possible, but you also have to convince people to come and eat it and try it at least once. And so, and all that stuff like that is kind of all intertwined in operating a successful business. So that was kind of like my next question was a lot of people who listen to this show, their big dream is, you know, doing pop-ups or running shops. Like Mm -hmm. what has, what has been the things that have made you been able to be so successful at this? Um, I religiously watch the numbers and my best friend is a spreadsheet (laughs) and you cannot hide from the numbers and you, you have to look at what it takes cost wise and you have to back into those numbers. You know, the first thing I'll ask a young chef is, okay, so what are you going to run your food cost at? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't really know. Great. We can't have a conversation until you know that. And then they'll go, well, how do I find that out? And so it's, it's the process. I'll say this. If there is anyone out there 
that is interested in opening a ramen shop and they want to talk to me about financially what it takes and what the structure is, I'm an open book. You can, they can email me, um, Sarah at the otakugroup.com. And I will be happy to share what's called a pro forma, which is basically a financial snapshot of what it takes to, you know, open and run a business like this. I will share that with anyone that wants it. That's really generous because I feel like it's, yeah, I mean, it's not a secret. And it's also, (laughs) I think, I think honestly, the other thing that's important to know is maybe the way that you make your food is, um, is, is special to you, but running a business is universal. There really are no secrets to running a business. There's no proprietary information to a P&L, to yeah. a profit loss yeah. sheet. Yeah. It is black and white numbers and they don't lie. Uh-huh. So learning how to separate your emotion from the numbers, that's the hard part. But once you learn how to do that, then you can make decisions and not let it eat you alive. Mm-hmm. You know. I- that could be like I would your, say the number one thing is learning how to control your emotions because it's emotional. Yeah. I feel like maybe that's your, your real advantage is you came from these industries, which are also selling emotions and highly emotional, but you also yeah. have the business aspect of P and L's numbers. You have to make things work, yeah. you know, taking care of everything that needs to be taken care of. So. Well, Ivan and I are both a little bit older than the average Joe in this biz. <laughs> so we, you know, I had owned businesses before this, uh-huh. so I came into it from that point of view. But as you get older, your priorities do change mm-hmm. and you do become more focused on if I'm going to spend my life doing this, I have to make money, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's hard to take care of employees or do anything if you're not generating revenue properly and having yep. a more making more money than you're spending. So, yeah, yeah, it's kind of, I, I feel like a lot of chefs, maybe they're, they're more artistic in the sense that they want to present ramen in the way that they want to present it. But that's the realities of running a shop is you have to balance that with the, the books and everything. Oh yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. An Instagram feed does not mean that you have money in the bank. <laughs> yeah. yeah you I mean, think. listen, I goggle at, at, um, men, sh- at, you know, men show as much as anybody else does, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, I goggle at beautiful bowls of ramen online all day long and um, think about how much I want to make that bowl of ramen in my shop. Um, But I have to do that mostly for myself and then for special events and things that Mm -hmm. I do is really only when I get to cook like that. Like one of, one of my absolute um, favorite bowls of ramen that I ever got to make was in Hong Kong at Yardbird. I got to take these incredibly beautiful chickens that I'll never get to work with again (laughs) that were so beyond superior to any chicken I have ever worked with. They have such an unfair advantage. Um, My tare was a little bit off, but the chickens were so good (laughs) that it didn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was literally like gold. Uh The stock looked like gold. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be, willing to work with what you have and learn from that and and go from there you know i mean if you live in a town and that town has a a farmer that's raising beautiful organic chickens and they can sell those chickens to you at a price that you can afford by god do it do it because you know when you start buying 600 pounds of bones a week 2,000 3,000 pounds of bones a week that changes 
Yeah. How have you gone about your um your marketing for your shop? Like, have you done? Mm-hmm. Have you found anything that kind of works for marketing ramen to maybe a, a, an area that's not so familiar with it? Like, how have you gone about doing that? Because it seems like you know to get that many vol that much volume of people coming in to eat every day, mm-hmm. you have to have done something to get people to get there. Like, have you found? Is it just word of mouth, or is it something that you guys have done? Or I think, I mean, that's lightning in a bottle, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um. I would say that a big majority of it started because we were a pop-up and we generated a lot of noise in a time where there wasn't a lot of noise Mm -hmm. before Nashville became a global superstar. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we had a lot of things added up for us. We had a very hungry audience. We had a city that was on the come. We had an economy that was on the rise. We had social media growing and growing and growing. And we had noodles. I mean, noodles and the internet love each other. So I think we just allowed people to do it for us, really. I mean, our marketing is not heavy handed, but that's a gift. Okay. That is not, I didn't set out for it to be that way. I wish I had an answer where I could say A, B, and C, like Mm -hmm. I do with the numbers, but it's just not the case. I, I think it, you know, there is a certain amount of what you do that you just kind of have to give it to the public and they give it back to you. Mm-hmm. And then when they know that it's a cyclical relationship, I think that's kind of part of the secret of it, you know, because this isn't for me. I mean, it's, it's for me in that I feed my family and this is, you know, me putting money in the bank and living my life. But I, we make ramen because it makes people happy. Mm-hmm. And, and that is our little gift to the world, you know, is that we get to do that. Yeah. So marketing is really should be a mirror of you, the values of how of you the run founder. your business, of who you are, of, of why you do what you do. I mean, you know, I get asked the question a lot. Um, why did you name it otaku? Because it's such a divisive word in, in Japan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it has so many like crazy, weird underground, you know, meanings. Yeah. If you really Google the word otaku, you know, you go to the Google image search, <laughs> the, the pictures that kind of come up. It's kind of, trust me, my 75 year old mother was the first thing she did. <laughs> she was like, I'm sorry, what are you calling it? Um, but really it was about obsession and, and that is what got me about the word that, and also being an outsider. Mm-hmm. And I just love that you know, because that's who I, I think I am. I, I am an obsessive outsider. And I think that it's a big piece of that culture that has laid the groundwork for the success of this brand because in this ramen shop, because I, we really thought and foolishly thought, naively thought that we were bringing this culture to middle Tennessee. Nope. It was already here. And and that was, that's kind of what's so much fun is that we're, we're just threading the needle, you know, um, and, and giving people a little more excuse to talk about something or experience something that they were already curious about. So the groundwork was laid by the culture itself, by Japanese pop culture. Um, we didn't lay the groundwork. So we just happened to have, a, we used the right word in the right place at the right time. And it gave people excitement around it. I mean, 
I can't tell you how many times I have sat or been in the shop and um, struck up a conversation with somebody. Hey, how are you doing today? Where are you from? Oh, I'm from two hours from here. Wow. wow. How, why did you come? Well, I've been reading the graphic novels for 20 years and I just wanted to have finally have my first bowl of ramen. So I think that, I think that Japanese otaku culture is so much more pervasive than anyone really understands mm -hmm. in middle America because it is about outsider culture yeah. and people love that. They love the underdog. They love feeling like they're in a pack of underdogs. So that, I think that the culture represents a big piece of the success. Yeah. It's yeah. awesome. I, I know we're kind of running over, uh, getting to an hour. So I just want to squeeze a couple of listener questions in. Sure. If we can do that. Cause uh, yeah. I love to ask questions. So Matsudai Ramen asks, <laughs> so he has a similar background mm -hmm. to us. He said, why do mm -hmm. so many people from the music industry and other creative <laughs> industries end up making ramen? <laughs> God, I don't know. That's a really good question. Probably because when I was having shitty days, all I did was eat ramen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is an interesting question. I think you're probably one of the few guests that can give insight to this one. So Backyard Ramen, who is a female ramen chef as well, mm -hmm. and Andre Key asks, why do you think most ramen chefs are men? Or mm. Why are there so few uh, female ramen chefs? Oh, gosh. I really don't know. I mean, maybe because... I think there aren't a lot of female chefs in Asia at all, mm -hmm. right? Even worse than here. And I think that maybe, um, I don't know. I, I mean, it would be really interesting to see if, if there are some young ones coming up in kitchens in Los Angeles now. I mean, I think Los Angeles is the, for me at least, really the hub of ramen in the U S. Um, and I think that probably the people that came over and were running ramen shops were families or individuals that had trained in Japan. And maybe in those environments, it's still very secretive, right? And that there's really not a lot of opportunity. Um, you have to be a little crazy in the head to do this without any guidance, uh -huh. you know? But I would love to see more women be in this industry. Um, I think that there is definitely a woman's touch to it. Um, so I, I, I would love to support that. Maybe you're, you're, you're kind of like the first role model of, for females, you know, like there really isn't anybody to look up to a little girl, like, Oh, I want to be like Sarah Gavigan. And now that you're there, you know, the next generation of ramen chefs will be 50, 50. With my knife and my, my <laughs> yeah. paddle. And my, yeah. Yeah. We'll be 50, 50 men and 50, 50 women because you know, there's examples out there that it's possible and you can run around. God, wouldn't that be fun to like yeah. line up five women ramen chefs and five men ramen chefs and do like, Oh, that would be amazing. Taste them all the way yeah. down the line. That would yeah. be really cool. That would be cool. All right. Let's see. Mr. I, I don't know how to read his name. It's Mr. TNKLMR or MRTNKLMR asks what, how can you make good ramen from basic supermarket ingredients? Is that possible? Mm, yes. It's definitely possible. Um, we use kikomen soy in our okay. tare, and that's the straight truth. <laughs> um, I would say go for the biggest, fattest chicken you can find. Get the old hen, get two of them, chop them up, take the breast off, put it in a pressure cooker. That's number one. No mirepoix, and 
the pressure cooker is really key because it keeps oxygen out, which is one of the, the real hallmarks of a great chicken stock. And if you've ever seen a picture of somebody doing a chin tan in a ramen shop, you'd probably see chicken feet on top, mm-hmm. which is, um, it doesn't bring any flavor. It only brings collagen and kind of mouthfeel. But what it does is it seals the pot so that no oxygen can get in or out because there's so much collagen coming off of the feet. It's like a slick of oil. So that's why I really, if I'm cooking at home, it's always with a pressure cooker. Um, Yeah. And, and really I think the, the number one thing to nail is the flavor. Um, And to, you know, I think that for the home cook miso is really the easiest way to go. Um, because creating flavor with miso is quite easy because it is such an umami bomb to begin with. Mm-hmm. And um, you can add some really basic, like if you add one fourth tahini to um, three fourths of, you know, shiro miso and a good bit of salt, you've got a tremendous tare. It's, it's, it's just taking, you have to start with Kind of, I, what I find is that you've got to find one primer, one thing that you're going to work around, whether that's going to be a duck, a chicken, a miso, a soy, but you kind of build out from there. So if and I'm like primary flavor and you're building around that. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if I'm halfway across the country and a friend's like, please make me ramen in my house. That's kind of how I go about it. If I'm going to mm. go to the grocery store and I'm, and I don't have my own pantry to work with, yeah. that's how I attack it. Oh, very cool. Some great tips. We have a couple of questions about your book. So you have a great ramen yeah. book. Um, the first question is from More Ramen. He says, are the recipes in your book the same ones as you're using in the restaurant? Mm-hmm. Oh, very they are. cool. Yeah, I think, I think we're the only ramen shop that's ever published our recipes. Wow. wow. So mm-hmm. not really keeping too many secrets in, far mm-hmm. in terms of the... Oh, okay, cool. It's all about execution. Uh-huh. That's what you learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of the thing too. A lot. Of, I've had some Japanese ramen chefs on here too, and they said that it's really the the person actually adds a lot of the flavor into it themselves. That what they're doing, even if you give them that, if you give two people the exact same ingredients, they're going to taste different because of the way that. The That's right. Yeah, I mean, ramen is very much about a touch, mm-hmm. you know, which is probably why women would be phenomenal ramen chef it takes a nuance. <laughs> yeah. You know, backyard ramen, she's really great. I get her, I get tips from her all the time. So awesome. So this is, this is more like a technical question. So Hattori okay. Danzo says, I have your book and the shiotari recipe calls for sake katsu, but I don't know where to add it. I guess he couldn't find when to add it. in the Yeah, recipe. that was a misprint. My apologies. Um, so you add it at the same time as you add the salt. Oh, okay, okay. And then you cook, you cook it all together. And if you if you can't find sakikasu, which a lot of people cannot, you can just simply omit it. But the key to the tare is to remember that one ounce of tare to 12 ounces of stock means that your salinity level needs to be 12 times higher. So as people are like pouring two and a half cups of salt into that, they're like, are you sure that's right? Uh-huh. Yep, it's right. How do you how do you develop your tare recipes in terms of that? Because that's always been my challenge. Where as far as so hard. how do you taste it? You know, it's so salty. Like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I dilute it. Try to dilute it with water, like a ten to one with water, and see how that is. And, but, yeah, okay. I think I think you have to buy a salinity meter. Okay, that's really like um, the other thing that was kind of a comforting thing to learn is that ramen is very much about science Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Naka really taught me that um, 
to, to build my recipes based on science, bricks, salinity, and so that you can get back to that same place every time. Right, because that's so, super important if you're trying to produce consistent results for your guests and your customers. Mm-hmm. You need that. You can't be like, oh, it was good this week and it was kind of different this week. And Yeah. And also, too, like you're working with natural organic matter. It's yeah. not going to be the same every single day. There's no way that that's possible. Um, food cannot be standardized in that way. So um, you have to teach your cooks how to make up for where the bones may not take you to in those types of things. So you, you, you have to find workarounds that I think a lot of, you know, people don't talk about those things. You know, if you, in the summer, the port bones are very different than they are in the winter. You know, the pigs are just different. So we definitely have to treat the stocks a little bit differently. But at the same time, we come down on our viscosity in the summer for the simple reason that it's summer. But, you know, for Tare, um, I will I will admit that has always been the hardest part for me. Mm-hmm. Um I think that if I was to do nothing but focus on that for a while, um, I would be able to um, maybe see it from a different point of view. But because I have to work with such basic ingredients, I've really kind of tried to stop myself from tinkering with that again and again and again and again and again. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I think we got a bunch of other questions, but I think you answered a lot of them. In the interview, and I really don't want to. I know you're so busy. I don't want to take up too no, much. No, it's time. fine. We're here. Ask the questions. Okay, let me let me try to get my phone up. So, is here's an interesting question for you because you is it fair to say you primarily specialize in tonkotsu ramen at Otaku Group, or is it okay? Mm-hmm. So, do the age? This is from Chill Gong Food. Do the age of the pig bones affect the thickness of the broth and the taste and etc.? Haven't really found that. Nope. Okay. So right now. We use femurs and backs. Okay. So I use three-fourths femur and one-fourth back. Um, because really what you're going for is, you know, you're not, there's not a tremendous amount of flavor in that tonkatsu, right? Especially if you're doing a light one like I am. Mm-hmm. So the soup is, is like all viscosity. So what you're trying to do is get the marrow and then you're trying to melt those big cartilage caps. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, if not, I, I like the femur and the back also because you you get enough bone that at the very end of our stock, when you pull the bones out, you can literally see that they're decalcified. So we take it all the way to the point of decalcification. Mm-hmm. So it'll look chalky on the outside, and that's when you're leaching out all the magnesium and calcium from the bone. So I, we do find that um, winter pigs take a little longer um, than summer pigs, mm-hmm. um, just depending on when they kill them, but not so much on age. Most, um, most kill plants have a pretty standard age that they kill at. Uh-huh. So. Okay, okay. Yeah, so you're kind of just like you have a set time, but you, you look at it first before you, said you pull it and stuff. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. So um, this is a question from a vegan chef, ramen chef, and he says that you chose, why did you choose rice cauliflower as your topping for your vegan ramen? I just love a tauntaun men. I've uh-huh. always loved it. It's always been one of my absolute favorite flavor combinations. And I love, um, I love a ground meat on the top of ramen because it falls down into all the noodles and you get little bites and it brings a different flavor to the broth as well. 
so I was mimicking that. I see. I um, see. And and really wanting to um, kind of have that same texture and flavor, and hoping that the rice cauliflower would kind of do the same thing. Which oh, it does. I see. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a. So this is a kind of a troll question from somebody. He's not sure. a, It's not really a troll question. It's like a question he tries That's to it. ask about every single episode. But and I'm just going to do it this one time because you seem really cool and you'll answer it. It's whole eggs or split eggs when you put the egg into the... Do you split the egg first or do you put the egg whole? I mean, personally for me, whole egg. But yeah. I find that for presentation, everybody wants to see the yolk. Uh-huh. So it's like for the me, customer, if I'm gonna... what the customer wants versus yeah. what you'd rather Yeah. Do. I love the look of a whole egg and I like biting into a whole yeah. egg, but I find that that kind of like wow factor on the bowl is the beautiful yolk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's see what uh, Matsudai ramen. He already asked another question, but he's actually a big <laughs> fan of you. He talked about you in his podcast episode as well. Um, sweet. He wanted to know what your process for recipe development is. Mm. Time. <laughs> um, like, you know, I opened up a restaurant to learn how to be a chef. Weird way to do it, you know? Um, so I think that my recipe development is um, usually for me now, it's at home, like where I'm in my own space and I can, I'm not dealing with the clanging of the rest of the kitchen. But again, I'm usually trying to take really simple ingredients and make them into something special. So I've stopped myself now from veering off into all of these wild ingredients because I know that I can't get them. So my recipe development usually is a long series of ideas that will become a dish that will then get improved upon after that. For example, um, I did, uh, I got to cook at the James Beard house this year. Yeah, I saw that on Instagram. I was like, absolutely cool. terrifying <laughs> and also completely exhilarating. Huh? And so I chose, I had had like, I had a whole other menu planned and then I was like, this is ridiculous. I need to do ramen. Like, come on. And I did a Tori Pytans Cayman and which is my, one of my all time favorites. And not because I had even had it somewhere else, but just because I love Tori Pytan so much. And it's, it's one of the hardest ones to make, um, usually because it's a byproduct of a chin tan and yeah. um, getting that viscosity consistent is even harder than a tonkatsu, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly because they waterlogged the chickens in the United uh-huh. States, which is really a bummer. Um, but it'll usually come from my recipe development will usually come from me being forced to do a dish for an event and then (laughs) adapting that for the restaurant. So there you have it. (laughs) I see. I see. All right. I'm trying to find ones that you haven't already answered because I know you've answered a lot of these questions. Um, Oh, so the Kyle machine asks, how was your pop-up in Indian in Indianapolis? And he, he said he was trying to get there, but he couldn't make it. Oh my God, it was crazy. So we showed up with 150 bowls Uh and 450 people showed up. Oh my God. (laughs) It's so crazy for me to hear these things because it's like, you don't think of Indianapolis, Indiana as a ramen town, but then you show up and 450 people are waiting to ramen. 
it, this is exactly what happened here. Mm-hmm. Like people are hungry for it. They, they are curious about it. You know, I mean, it's, it's gained, um, it's, it's like, it's eponymous on the internet, right? Ramen, 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 ramen. But I think it's like, it's like an event for people. They want to try it. And who doesn't love noodles? And like, yeah. we were just, it was, it was one of those really like amazing, wonderful, wonderful evenings. There was no demographic. I mean, the age was like a newborn to 89 years old. <laughs> That's so crazy. There, I mean, brown, purple, red, green, you know, all different kinds of people. And from all different parts of the city, it was just wonderful. And it gave me so much hope that, you know, hopefully this food and what we're doing, it, it really brings people together. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, what do you see as the future of ramen in America, just in terms of, you know, like you're seeing these things like Nashville, Tennessee, people are just loving it. Indianapolis, mm-hmm. Indiana is loving it, like throughout the whole Midwest. Of course, the coasts already have a little bit of intro to it, like L.A. Mm-hmm. and New York. They kind of have an idea of ramen. But I think where do you see it going for the rest of the country in the next 10 years or so? We're only getting started. I mean, I think it's going to grow and grow and grow. I mean, especially whoever survives this year is going to have opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so every decision that we make right now is to put ourselves back into that position Mm -hmm. because we really do want to bring ramen to the ramen list. And I think that, um, I hope that ramen continues to grow in the U S because I think that there is a lot of good in it. I would love to see some, um, you know, I don't think it's going to, I don't think soba or any other kind of udon will take off quite like ramen will just because it has kind of this rock and roll status that yeah, soba yeah. and udon do not, you know, it's a little bit like, I feel like soba and udon are pretty like rigid, you know? Yeah. yeah. I always say like ramen's kind of like punk rock where there's no, really, it is there's punk no rock. rules. Yeah. 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 So I think that it's a combination of all those things that make people like it, you know? And, and I think that that's only going to continue to grow. Plus with, you know, fine dining is going to be really challenged. And I think that people are just always looking for a place to go that they enjoy and that makes them happy, makes their kids happy. Like that's the kind of stuff that I think is going to help ramen to continue to grow throughout the U S. I mean, ironically, if we think about it right now, like Ichiran's little booths, like they've got it right. That's like, I was thinking about that today. I was like, Oh my God they've got it nailed, right? <laughs> that, and if, if I was to say to someone in Tennessee, oh. um, when you come into the ramen shop, you have to put your money into a ticket machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not going to touch anybody. You're not going to talk to anybody. Uh-huh. And then you're going to sit in this booth and you're not going to be able to talk on your phone. <laughs> and someone is going to push a bowl of ramen through a hole and then you're going to eat it without speaking to anybody uh-huh. and you're going to get five minutes to do it. <laughs> they would be like, they would say some expletive things yeah, to yeah. me. doesn't seem so far fetched anymore. No, yeah. The world's probably yeah. going to change. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can there, just only imagine like ordering through phones rather than like a vending machine, but you know, touchless, everything as touch, touchless uh-huh. as possible through a whole process. Yeah. Do you Definitely. think American style ramen, like what do you consider, what do you, do you have any ideas of where that's going to go? Like, you know, tonkotsu seems like a pretty good fit in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you see like other kinds of ramen popping up in different areas of the country where using regional ingredients here and 
different things around that? Or? I definitely think it will continue to have regional ingredients. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it just makes sense. It's how it developed in Japan as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. you work with what you have. And um, I'm excited to see, you know, like, I wish that it happened more, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like, I wish you saw more ramen chefs in New England doing, you know, a champagne or doing more, you know, clam or fish-based ramen and, you know, things like that. But I think it's difficult because, again, people want to kind of have to play the hits if you want to yeah. be successful. Yeah. Or you're going to be Mencho and you're going to go 100% Kodawari <laughs> uh -huh. and just hope that you're that good. <laughs> uh -huh. You know? So I, I think it's, it's understanding who you're going to be, first and foremost, as a ramen chef. And owning that you know um it was hard for me to accept that i was not a kodawari ramen chef and that i never will be and i'm okay with that because i know that if you were to put my ramen side by side next to um an apuda bowl in my bowl and you put a japanese person in the middle they're probably going to choose the apuda bowl <laughs> but that's okay yeah yeah you know and and knowing that we have an audience and that we serve an audience um and being proud of that, you can't be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. That's everything you have to remember. Great, great. So I guess we can just wrap it up here. Do you have any last words of advice for all the aspiring ramen chefs or aspiring restaurateurs out there? You could share with them. I think that if you decide that making ramen is what you wanna do as your life's work, and it really does have to be your life's work if you choose to do it, it cannot be a side project. Um, I think the rules for me of a successful ramen shop is ramen has to be the star of the show. No ramen and sushi. No, you know, you can't do multiple things. Ramen has to be the star of the show. And then find a mentor. Find not just a chef mentor, a business mentor that can coach you through the most vulnerable pieces of doing this. I believe that the industry is going to get better after this. I believe that some of the government regulations are hopefully going to change labor laws to help us operate more efficiently and to give people better lives that come to work for us. So if you want to own a ramen shop, if you want to do this for a living, you have to be ready to be a leader. If you want to just hide in the kitchen all day then go work for someone else. That is my best piece of advice. You can't have it both. If you want to be an owner, you have to be a leader. And that takes a lot of sacrifice and very little time in the kitchen. So you have to ask yourself if you want to be a chef or an owner. I don't really think that it's healthy to do both. I had to digress from that a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I kind of I feel like Ivan uh, said very similar things. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So thank you so much, Sarah, for the time. I really do appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. Well, let me know if there are any extra questions. Oh, they'll come in. Well, if, if um, people do have extra questions, can they hit you up on Instagram or anything? Or Of course. Of course. Or you just let me know if there are questions on your feed and I'll go answer them on your feed. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you want people yeah. to like, uh, hit, uh, do you want to direct anybody, uh, direct people to your Instagram or to your website or to your sure. restaurant or um, just to the Instagram? Yeah. Instagram? Okay, okay. So at We're always admin. there. Happy to answer any questions. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Take care.
Thanks so much again to Sarah for coming on the show. I know I said that like three times at the end, but she's really busy and I really do appreciate it. You can follow her on Instagram at Sarah Gabigan or her Otaku Group restaurants. And her restaurants are all open in Nashville, Tennessee, serving takeout. So if you're in the area, please go check them out. She also has a ramen recipe book, which you can pick up on Amazon or wherever books are sold. I'll link that all up in the show notes. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Way of Ramen, and you can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash Way of Ramen. You can also follow my ramen making journey on YouTube as I try to figure out how to make ramen by searching The Way of Ramen on YouTube, and my channel should pop up. That's it for this episode. Next week, we have a really fun one with a roundtable discussion with Ramen Beast, Ramen Adventures, and Nama Japan TV. Thank you all so much for listening, and I'll see you all in the next episode. Peace. <laughs>